Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre podcast. The Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre unites over a thousand world-leading biologists, chemists, physicists, engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists, clinicians, nurses and allied healthcare professionals from across Cambridge and the UK to tackle cancer from every angle. Our mission is to end death and disease caused by cancer through research, treatment and education. We are detecting cancer at its earliest stage and are developing personalised treatments for every patient through facilitating new collaborations and driving the translation of new scientific discoveries into clinical applications to improve patient care. By working together across a range of different disciplines, our members are breaking down the barriers between the laboratory and the clinic, enabling patients to benefit from the very latest innovations in cancer science. In this special episode of our podcast, we bring you a recording of a live Ask Me Anything event held by our Pancreatic Cancer Programme, the World Pancreatic Cancer Day on the 18th of November. The AMA session saw pancreatic cancer specialists from across the CRUK Cambridge Centre answering questions about pancreatic cancer that were submitted by members of the public. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in a future podcast episode, or if you have ideas for topics that you would like us to discuss in a future series, please let us know by visiting our website at www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk forward slash podcast. The AMA session was chaired by Dr. Bristy Basu, an academic consultant in medical oncology specialising in experimental cancer therapeutics at the University of Cambridge and Cambridge University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, and the clinical co-lead of the CIUK Cambridge Centre's Pancreatic Cancer Programme. I'm now going to hand over to Bristy, and we hope that you enjoy the event. Without further ado, I, I, let me introduce um, some members of our team. First of all, myself, I'm Brissy Bastil. I'm an uh, academic medical oncologist at the University of Cambridge, and I uh, co-lead the Pancreatic Cancer Programme at Cambridge with um, Julia Biffy. Ju Julia, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks, Brissy, and welcome, everyone. My name is Julia Biffy. I'm a group leader here at the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Institute, and I co-direct the Pancreatic Cancer Programme with Brissy. Um, can we have Pippa, please? Hi, I'm Pippa Corey. I'm a medical oncologist um, here in at Addenbrooke's, which means I'm basically a, the, the kind of doctor that gives anti-cancer drugs to try and treat the disease. Um, and Asif? Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I'm a consultant surgeon dealing with uh, uh, pancreatic diseases and, and liver diseases. Um, uh, part of the team that uh, operates on pancreatic cancers uh, in uh, Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. And uh, Jill? Um, hi, I'm um, everyone. I'm Jill Barker. I'm the HVB Oncology Specialist Nurse based at Addenbrooke's. Um, work with the rest of the team um, with the patients when they come to the pathway um, on the oncology side. And Laura? Hi, I'm Laura. I'm a pancreatic cancer dietitian. So I help people with pancreatic cancer 
with um, suggestions with eating, drinking, um, problems they might have there with their pancreatic enzymes and uh, some aspects of the diabetes and other things. Uh, can we have Nicola next and um, AD? Morning. Hi, uh, my name's Nicola and I'm a clinical specialist physiotherapist in oncology rehab and exercise here at Addenbrooke's. I run the REACT programme, which is our rehab and exercise um, activity during Addenbrooke's cancer treatment. So offering exercise opportunities and physio rehab to patients, all patients um, or any cancer types during their, their treatment journey. Hello, my name is Aideen Martin. I am the surgical physiotherapy team lead here in Adderbrooks in Cambridge. So I would see patients post-operatively on their rehab pathway. And Francis. Um, hello, my name is Francis. I'm one of the palliative care clinical nurse specialists um, and I'm involved with uh, pa pancreatic cancer patients either during an inpatient visit. So um, if they're admitted for um, acute issues, um, also for the enhanced supportive care role, so to have contact with um, patients earlier on in, uh, in their diagnosis and their palliative care journey. Thank you. And most, last and uh, most importantly, uh, Jim. Can you introduce yourself? Thank you. Yeah, right. Good morning, everybody. I think I'll start off by saying this is not my normal hair colour. <laughs> my hair and beard were dyed purple for today and as a fundraiser for PC UK. Uh, other than that, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer six years ago and subsequently underwent a distal pancreatectomy and splenectomy at Addenbrooke's. And as you can see, I'm currently doing very well. We're, we're delighted to see that and we are actually very, very lucky that at Cambridge we have some fantastic input from a number of uh, PPI representatives. Um, Kate is um, behind the scenes and with the, uh, as the Cambridge uh, CRUK Cambridge Centre um, banner and she's our programme manager and I, I think she will tell us a little bit more uh, with Julia later on about other events happening locally uh, within and regionally within uh, Cambridge. Uh, on this World Pancreatic Cancer Day. So we actually had significant numbers of uh, questions and I would try to bunch them into themes and I, I apologize if I can't go through all of them, but we will try and address as many as we can today. And please feel free to, to ask more questions as well. I can see that there are 51 participants and we can, we, that there are a whole a group of people from diverse um, sides of, of the, the group who are interested in pancreatic cancer, either um, on the clinical aspects, directly, personally, um, you know, ha having experience of um, pancreatic cancer themselves or through their loved ones, managing patients, also on the research front as well. So we welcome you all and we want to get the, uh, you know, as many questions which will uh, tackle the holistic aspects of dealing with this really difficult cancer. We know that it has one of the lowest survivals of all common cancers and it's becoming increasingly more common. A five-year survival is less than 7% and we know the early diagnosis is pretty crucial, but we are we struggle with this because it presents with non-specific symptoms and is often picked up late. So some of the questions that came through to us were regarding access to treatment and the treatments which are available and why, when we might consider patients for surgery, for instance. So I thought, thought I might just start off asking Asif, what, what, are, the, what are the considerations that, that there are for, 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 for deciding on resectability or operability of these cancer patients? Thank you. Thank you, Brissy. <clears throat> so um, a pancreatic cancer um, 
uh, like many other cancers, um, are obviously um, highly dependent on whether they can be removed or not. Um, surgery is the key part of that treatment, um, the mainstay of the treatment. So if you can remove the pancreatic cancer, that is best um, uh, thing for the patient. Unfortunately, uh, what we see is that the majority of the cancers, the pancreatic cancer that come through to us are already not resectable, i.e. Uh, they cannot be removed. And there are two aspects uh, to it. One is uh, that the cancer might have spread to other organs, distant organs, uh, 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 which we call metastasis. So even if the pancreas pancreatic cancer is small, and if it has gone into liver or lung or any other tissue uh, that we can't remove, then obviously that cancer is not uh, amenable uh, to removal because even if we remove the main pancreatic cancer, we'll be leaving um, cancer spread elsewhere. So one is the distant spread. The second part, which uh, we uh, do struggle with uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, and, um, and try and assess and give the benefit of the doubt to the patient as much as possible is the local spread. Uh, pancreas is, a, is an organ that is set between lots of organs, lots of very major blood vessels that are key for survival, such as the blood supply going into the liver, um, intestine, and so on and so forth. So uh, the second aspect is what we call as locally advanced pancreatic cancer, which means that although it's not spread to distant tissues or organs, it is just too big or involving just the wrong or key structures uh, where, where it is. Uh, and if we cannot remove all of it, uh, uh, then it is futile to remove only part of it. Uh, um, so in other words, for example, if it is involving the blood supply going into the liver, um, it is too much of a surgery, too much of a uh, risk to remove all of that and the, and the cancer. So uh, when, the, when the cancer is locally advanced or it is too complex or too big locally, that also we can't remove. So all of these things are determined by a very thorough uh, staging uh, procedure. Uh, we spend quite a lot of time on staging to make sure that we detect the right individuals that have resectability. As I said earlier, we give the benefit of the doubt to the patients as much as possible and try to resect them because it is the key uh, to treatment. Uh, and, uh, but sadly, um, uh, vast majority um, to the tune of 70%, um, perhaps, um, if we push it um, more, maybe 60% people are still unresectable at the time of diagnosis. Thank you very, thank you very much for that. Well, I actually had um, um, a, a very specific and early question, actually, but even before that, um, which we will answer live. Um, what does the pancreas uh, do, uh, Laura? Why don't we? Why don't we start with you? Are you are you able to help us with this, um, please? Sure. So the pancreas has got two main roles in the body, and they're all involved with dealing with the nutrition that we eat. So there's the, um, the pancreas produces enzymes that uh, mix with the food that we eat in our bowel to break it down into pieces small enough that we can absorb it through the wall of our bowel and therefore it nourishes us. If we don't have those enzymes, then the nutrition we eat goes in our mouth and stays in that tube that goes through us and we pass it down the pan rather than uh, absorbing it into our body. 
And then the second role of the pancreas is to <clears throat> deal with that nutrition further down the line. So it produces hormones. And the one people are most <clears throat> usually more likely heard of is insulin. Um, but it produces four hormones that help us to deal with the carbohydrate we eat and the level of sugar in our blood. Okay, thank you very much for that. Actually, um, Jim, I was wondering whether you'd mind um, telling us well, what were the symptoms and the, uh, your signs of, of, that you had pancreatic cancer? Because um, as Asif has mentioned, you know, it's quite difficult sometimes to get these symptoms uh, um, to, uh, as, more, uh, as a specific sign of cancer. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think this is one of the sort of key things, because to be honest, I've probably been feeling unwell for quite a few months before it was discovered. But with nothing that you could really put your finger on as being an issue. I was feeling unwell, not myself. I was losing my appetite. I was getting sort of strange, odd pains, not just nuisance pains, the left side of my ribs, sometimes in my back, particularly when I was in bed, laying in bed, I'd feel some, some pain in my back, but nothing enough to really think there's something really wrong just think what is just going on here is it old age and pieces like that or is my heart playing up i'm getting pain so on the left side and that but it was very sort of non-specific i think then i just started to lose my appetite and i was losing weight and yeah waking up in the morning as exhausted as when i went to bed so that's really when i think you know it came home to me that this needed looking further at, you know, and I went to see my GP, but I did put off seeing my GP for several months. Yes, and I think that's that's quite common, as isn't it? Because I, I, some of the symptoms you mentioned are very non-specific, aren't they? I was just wondering if Jill or Francis could mention any of the other symptoms that we commonly kind of come across in our patients. Yeah, I, th I think it's um, it's just been said. It's a, it, they're very sort of they are non-specific. People attend, but they also get pain, uh, like the gastric reflux, um, fatigue, um, sort of radiating pain to the back. Um, so these are the main sort of issues. I mean, on severe cases of the problems, some um, patients can go jaundice. Um, but I think we're looking at sort of the main sort of element is, is discomfort and sort of generally feeling unwell and maybe bloating. Um, seem to they seem to present with. Francis, was there anything else that you wanted to mention at all? I, I don't think so. I, I think early on, um, I don't have that much um, contact with patients early on with the symptoms. So I think um, probably the things that Jill is seeing. Um, okay. And and so, uh, so yeah, I, I think com some of the common ones um, which have, have been mentioned, tummy back pain, tummy pain, which goes to the back, unexplained weight loss or loss of appetite, a change in bowel habits, as as as, as uh, Laura has mentioned, you know, pancreas is so specific, it's so important for um the bowel function, um indigestion as well, um and also jaundice. Um, some people just complain of itchy skin. Um, and and one of the questions I think submitted was why why does pancreatic cancer cause itching? That's from Jenny in Suffolk. Um, have we got any answers from uh, Laura? Is that all right? And why 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 um, pancreatic cancer causes itching? Yeah. Because of the because of the jaundice, the which is um, the bilirubin, which is something that um, the level that would build up in your blood, and then that would cause itching. I don't know the exact process of how um, the itching's caused, but that building up in your skin would give you jaundice. As yeah. if might have a more technical response. <laughs> 
I think I think that that's plenty. It's the bile salts, isn't it, which are accumulating under the skin, causing it itching. So, um, okay. So, so actually, in terms of um, the the symptoms that often present, and uh, you know, I think that um, sometimes, it, although a, a tumor might be technically resectable, um, operable, uh, patients aren't well enough to have um, have kind of the treatment. And I'm just wondering whether we can get some advice from from Jill, um, Laura, Nicol Nicola, and and Aideen about how we optimize their performance status. You know, prior to considerations of any treatment. Um, and I'm happy to ask Nicola. Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we've already heard that actually there can be um, a deterioration in, in, a, in an individual's well-being in this run up to the, the diagnosis. So often when the decision is made for surgery or for chemotherapy, that patient isn't necessarily in their optimal condition, that they have become deconditioned. Um, and there is certainly a concept called prehabilitation or prehab, where we can try and get that patient as well as we possibly can. Uh, we can optimize them for their surgery or for their, their chemotherapy so that there is um, there's the best possible surgical outcomes, there's the shortest length of stay possible as well, and so that they, they can recover well following their surgery. And we we do get involved with offering prehabilitation for for the individuals. It's sometimes the exercise guidelines can be quite daunting for these patients, though. And sometimes you see all of these guidelines about moderate intensity exercise and what have you. And actually, for that patient group, it it, it can be quite overwhelming. So we often start from a slightly lower uh, a lower level, if you like, and we we start getting that patient to think about reducing their sedentary behaviour, starting to be more physically active around the house, um, around the garden, doing other activities with their friends and families before they start to sort of um, become uh, become more au fait with, with, with exercise. And that's when we try and build in the guidelines. We don't want patients to uh, to run from the hills straight, straight off. <laughs> straight off the bat but um yeah so there's very good evidence for for this this prehabilitation to optimize patients ready for their treatment um Aideen, do you want to add to that just to to echo what nicola was saying um it's also never too late to start and i think that's a really important message to, to get out today um in terms of exercise all exercise can be modified um towards the the person and that individual um, another element that we look at from a prehabilitation point of view is also breathing exercises and trying to optimize patients from a from a lung function point of view as well we have jill raising her hand as well to us um yeah just i think Often when you see patients um, at the beginning of the journey, um, maybe sometimes I find it's even when you're visiting them on the surgical ward, um, the, the main things I think to optimise is um, obviously they're, they're, they've lost weight, is their dietary um, input, but also psychologically, I think we need to work on, um, it's obviously a, a shock diagnosis. It's, it's, it's trying to sort of help get them the head around it and and you know family members as well um i think if they're not in the right place mentally as well it's going to be a hard thing to begin the journey and um sort of want to build themselves up in a dietary way um and help with fatigue um etc so i think it's, it's it's really important to mention that maybe can i ask laura first to talk, talk about diet and then maybe we can um address some of the resources that people can access to help um, support them through this so in general, what people would, would need. So um, 
various different people have mentioned various symptoms that people get when they have pancreatic cancer and, and a lot of those would impact on someone's nutritional intake for a variety of reasons so if you're tired it's harder to go shopping it's harder to prepare food it's harder to to want to eat so much um if you have a change in bowel habit when you eat then that can put you off eating um so there's lots of reasons why people might eat less or might modify what they're eating um our primary goal i suppose um in helping to nourish people is definitely to support people in being able to eat enough but really initially helping them their body to deal with the nutrition that they do have so that's the pancreatic enzyme replacement so i mentioned earlier that one of the roles of the pancreas is to produce these digestive enzymes um and if the pancreas isn't producing enough or because of a tumor they're blocked from getting into the bowel then we can replace those in in a capsule so people can take um these pancreatic enzymes which actually come from pig pancreas to be able to digest what they eat so um sometimes people don't actually need to eat any more to stop losing weight they just need to be able to deal with the food that they are having um, or if maybe they have undiagnosed diabetes which means that your body can't deal with the carbohydrate that you're eating and the level of sugar in your blood goes really high then um, you lose weight because of that so helping people to um, so that we can identify that and then treat that as early as possible uh, is most helpful and then people can get all sorts of um, individual um side effects either of the cancer or its treatment and then we would look at those so maybe their stomach is taking a bit longer to empty and they need a liquid diet or um maybe they have a sore mouth or um finding swallowing hard or, or any sort of range of things that people come with then we make a sort of bespoke plan for them depending on whatever their symptoms are thank you and um was there anything from jim or um anyone else about that side of things yeah i mean a lot of this sort of rings true really with what you know has, has already been said and uh, in, in particular sorts of things that sort of laura has mentioned you know the loss of the appetite and you know i was my wife would be putting my favorite meal in front of me i would eat a few mouthfuls of it and i felt full up you know and you can imagine how well that goes down at home but it was those kind of issues but it was all non-specific and I was sort of losing weight at that point then we didn't know what was going on with me but you know and my GP surgery and I'm no criticism of them whatsoever they didn't initially make this link because it is such a difficult thing to pick up on you know blood tests had confirmed that I've got high blood glucose levels so it's assumed that I've become type 2 sort of diabetic well with hindsight you can see that this was causing the diabetes and it's only from the follow-ups and the uh, time I spent with a diabetic nurse at GP surgery when my blood sugar levels were still not dropping when finally the alarm bells rung you know and the investigation for the cancer started but yes and, and building yourself up I can hold, wholeheartedly agree with that okay. the emotional the emotional build is the key thing I think really having some positivity and belief that you know you can come through this 
Thanks, Jim, that's really important. Um, okay, so I, I think there was a question from the audience about how, uh, you know, how common a met metastasis is in pancreatic cancer and, you know, how common advanced diseases, we've addressed some of the early disease um, where we, there might be resection options. Um, Pippa, I was wondering whether you might kind of start to talk to some of the more advanced uh, treatment options, so uh, the treatment options for more advanced cases of pancreatic cancer and how common it is. Sure. I think, um, as Asif actually alluded to at the very beginning, unfortunately, and partly because of the non-specificity of, of the, the symptoms that patients get with this disease, the majority of people are actually diagnosed with advanced disease. Um, and that's something that clearly we, we are very much focusing on from a research community as to how we, we can change that and we can get onto that later. But yes, at the moment, um, we have a, a high proportion, two thirds, three quarters of all pancreatic cancer patients are diagnosed with advanced disease. And that's either a locally advanced tumor as Asif was, was mentioning, the primary tumor is too big to get to, to remove, or there is spread to other disease sites, to, to uh, body organs. And the, the common places that, that pancreatic cancer spreads to it is the liver. Um, it can spread within the abdomen. Um, more rarely, it can go to, to the, the lungs and elsewhere. But it's, it's usually the, the extensive spread to the liver, which is, is the major problem. So people like myself and Bristy, as, as, as oncologists, spend a lot of time giving anti-cancer drugs or chemotherapy to try and, and treat this disease. But um, what we've been finding is that by comparison with the leaps and bounds of, of, of improvements that have um, come over the last 10, 20 years, particularly in terms of the new um, types of, of, of drugs that we're using based upon a better understanding of the biology of the disease, we're still struggling to really make inroads um, in, in pancreatic cancer. So we still use conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy as our standard treatment. It can achieve um, disease prolongation, but it doesn't cure. It has limited benefits. Ultimately, the cancer will grow despite the treatment we give, um, but it can also um, improve quality of life and uh, pain control, things like that. So it's definitely worth using. And clearly, you know, there are some people who do better than others, and we still want to learn from that. And um, we again, we can talk a bit more about how we are trying to enroll people all the time in clinical trials and programs of research where we can learn from, from patients. And in the UK at the moment, we have a program called Precision Pank, which is all about trying to learn from that initial tumor biopsy about the molecular insights, the, 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 the genetic changes that may be uh, dictating um, the, the behavior of that cancer so that hopefully we may be able to identify specific pathways that we can target and, and block directly with the more modern uh, molecular types of treatments. And, and um, so Julia may want to talk about some yeah. of the science, um, but you know, it, it, what we're very keen to do is to engage with all our patients to encourage them to take part in these kind of trials so that we can improve outcomes, if not now, but certainly in the future. That's, that's really, really well summarized. And I think, um, I think there were questions actually submitted about, you know, precision oncology and whether, you know, 
around the UK is being offered. I think Georgina from Cambridge had asked that. Um, and you've addressed that actually there is a UK national precision bank um, uh, infrastructure, which has actually built up mechanisms to get the tissue and get it sequenced. It's still early days in terms of trying to find um, ways to tackle these uh, changes when we find them and find the appropriate trials for them, but we are making some inroads into that. So some of the other questions kind of within that theme are obviously, as you've mentioned, pancreatic cancer is often resistant to drugs, uh, what other treatments are available being researched um, and how do you foresee treatments for pancreatic cancer in five to 10 years time? Those are questions submitted by Georgina and Sally in Cambridgeshire. I, I was wondering whether Julia, you wanted to make a start from the lab side of things, what, what sort of things are, are looking exciting from that side of um, the, the treatment aspects? Yeah, so I think the the what we are looking at is various levels. One is still we need to understand better the biology of the tumors because we are quite behind compared to other cancer types. And the other thing is we need to understand how the tumor will respond to the therapies that we are using. And so um, the, we are using laboratory models across different laboratories in Cambridge. And we are also looking at patient tissues to understand these two things. And, how, and in particular, a lot of uh, efforts we're trying to do is to look at the tumor as a whole rather than just at the cancer cells and how different uh, cell types in these tumors are contributing to the progression and the uh, dissemination to metastatic sites um, of the cancer cells. And then, of course, we are also working towards early detection, but I think we can talk about this when, uh, when we... Yeah, we've got several questions about that uh, later. But yes, I, I think um, you mentioned about precancerous tissue and, um, and trying to learn a little bit more about that. And uh, there was a question from Claire in Berkshire about, you know, um, what kind of research is being conducted on precancerous pancreatic tissue? I, I, I'm aware, I may, Asif may want to speak to this as well, that one of our colleagues, Anita Balakrishnan, who's a surgeon, is actually looking at pancreatic cysts and looking at um, the, the cysts which might develop into, um, have more risk of developing into pancreatic cancers and trying to look at the biomarkers within those cysts. I don't know, Asif, whether you wanted to say anything to that as well. I think that's uh, that's right, uh, Bristy. Um, so uh, there is a lot of work going on in early diagnosis, uh, particularly for high-risk cancer patients. Um, so as you mentioned cysts, one of my colleagues is looking at it. Um, there is obviously work going on in uh, trying to uh, get early diagnosis for people that have uh, um, uh, family history, a strong family history of cancers, or or um, or indeed they have. Uh, uh, genetic mutations that uh, are part of cancer syndromes. Um, um, and um, Ms. Balakrishnan also is looking at uh, circulating tumor DNA and that sort of thing. So there are lots of work going on in early detection, but they are very much still very much in the lab rather than in the clinic. Um, so the application is still some, some, some time away. So I think um, I think that you know there are um, to answer Claire's question about research being conducted on precancerous um, pancreatic tissue. There 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 are um, efforts happening, and actually even in the Sanger, I think they are going to be looking at pancreatic cancer. Uh, sorry, pancreatic uh, tissue. Um, which might not have cancer, and also um, in, in patients who, uh, just to look at field changes, changes to the ge genetic kind of molecular 
profiles within some of the, um, the, 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 the non-cancerous tissue just to work out whether they can learn a little bit more about that. So there is some interest in finding out what, you know, why, why these cancers are, are developing. Um, maybe we can start to look at the question actually, because there've been several questions about uh, biomarkers and how we get this cancer earlier, which is so important because we really don't want to get this cancer so we can cut it out and, and, and give treatments to it so that we can cure it, you know, and, and we're not in that position yet um, because um, frequently it's beyond resection. So, so in terms of, of that, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, Pippa, Pippa, you were aware about um, the GRAIL study and um, would you mind speaking to that a little bit and I can say a little bit more as well. Yeah, so so definitely, clearly, you know, I, I think everybody is is completely um, agreed that we really do need to have a concerted effort to try and diagnose cancer, pancreatic cancer, but all cancers earlier, um, and that's good for patients and it's good for the health service as well, actually. Um, and um, and there are there is a lot of work out there which is growing um, through. Um, scientists and biotech companies, all sorts of people working together. And NHS England is part of um, a strategy alongside the National Institute for Health Research in promoting uh, research in this area and clinical studies. Um, and just one example, it's not the only one, but there are a number of, of these kind of studies out there now, um, is the identity is the, the um, use of picking up bits of genetic material that is released into the blood from tumors. And we call this circulating free DNA. And this can be detected now. Um, there are some fabulous scientists who can do this. We've got people in Cambridge, but um, across the world, this is a huge area of focus. Um, and in this particular situation, a company called Grail, and you can go onto their website, G-R-A-I-L, um, and, and they have lots of information there, has teamed up with um, NHS England and the NIHR um, and um, is basically conducting two large scale trials, um, one which is about population screening. Um, literally just taking a blood sample from individuals in the community coming through GP surgeries to try and identify a cancer in asymptomatic people. And then there's another study called Simplify, which has been um, and is just coming to its fruition at the moment, completing uh, recruitment of 8000 individuals who have, as we've discussed today, rather non-specific symptoms who are being referred in through their GP to what we call rapid diagnostic centers. And those people who are going through the standard um, diagnostic tests, endoscopies, biopsies, scans, and so on, will also, again, just have a simple blood test. And the idea is then to be able to correlate the outcomes of all the tests with um, whether or not this, this blood um, sample will be able to detect the cancer. And, um, and this is looking across multiple cancers. The initial work that they've done uh, with the GRAIL test, um, they were able to identify up to 50 different types of cancer. And there was a very strong correlation um, with disease stage. So they were able to pick up very easily advanced disease, but they were also able to pick up early stage disease. So the idea is if we can shift 
from being able to pick up earlier stages of disease. We will get more people to ASIF for surgery um, and we will have hopefully fewer people coming through to me and me and Bristy. Um, so I think, you know, that, that that's the whole concept. Those studies will report quite quickly, I think, in, in the coming year or so. Um, so literally we're talking a simple blood test to replace a whole gamut of complex um, diagnostic tests and so on. It's very hopeful at the moment. Um, I think we just have to keep our fingers crossed that, that the results are good. Thank you. And, and actually, you know, as, as Pippa mentioned, there are a number of efforts in this in this field. Um, there have been a number of questions specifically for this. So it's clearly a really important um, area of research for our community our, um, who are, you know, uh, are interested in pancreatic cancer. So some of the questions are, I have been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Is there a test members of my family should consider with a view to early diagnosis from Fat Fran in Cambridgeshire? Is there a screening blood test that I can have for pancreatic cancer? That's actually from uh, Lindsay in Warrington. Uh, to help earlier diagnosis, could a research trial give a liquid biopsy and access pa participants' health records over an extended period of time for the high-risk groups, that's from Georgina in Cambridge. All of these things are actually um, happening in different um, spheres. So actually in terms of the family history, it's, it's uh, as, as has been mentioned a couple of times, there are certain uh, groups who are um, potentially um, have an inherited um, tendency for pancreatic cancer. And um, we, we know that if you, currently the testing criteria, if, if um, you, you should be referred to genetics if you are, uh, have pancreatic cancer under the age of 60, or if you have pancreatic cancer under the age of 70, but you have uh, breast cancer under the age of 60, melanoma under the age of 60, or ovarian cancer, or, first or second degree relatives with pancreatic cancer um, under the age of 60, um, or two first or second degree relatives with any breast cancer aged under 60, melanoma or ovarian cancer. And that's because of some of the genes that are implicated in the familial pancreatic cancer. So the inherited types of can pancreatic cancer, BRCA2, CDKN2A for the, um, uh, the FAM syndromes. Um, so th there, there are groups where they actually are counseled by genetics and um, have, have um, sequencing done to see if they're carrying this. And there are um, studies uh, which are kind of led by uh, Liverpool, the Europac study, um, which um, is a large kind of uh, study um, being run within Europe and, and, and the UK, um, looking at certain um, uh, ways to investigate uh, these th these people who don't have pancreatic cancer but have um, potential high risks, um, and they do do it through blood, but also through endoscopy and imaging. Now, one of the ways we really want to try and bring this more widely to to, uh, to to people in in the public is to make it uh, these biomarkers non-invasive and so to that end uh, Pip has mentioned the uh, blood uh, blood testing within the Grail study we we have also um, a study which I believe is uh, they it was actually only earlier this year where there was a, a PANFAM1 which was looking at the IMRE PANCAN D test 
which was um, looking at some uh, kind of a, a signature produced by the pancreatic cancer, um, which resulted in an antibody signature when you, when you run it through a, a panel. And uh, that has actually been validated in the UK population. So it's being tested. And I suspect that, that you know, it's, it's being commercialized. So we will potentially hear quite within the next year or two um, how that's going in terms of uh, wider adoption as well. Um, also, I think John from um, Essex has asked about Europank, that's spelled U-R-O-Pank. That's a study which is being run from um, BARTS um, with some funding from PCRF. And there they're looking at, at three uh, biomarker signatures within urine and they're trying to test it in um, a few thousand patients um, to look at at potential patients with um, high risk features and symptoms versus uh, other populations. So this is a very active area of research because we actually completely get why why we need to de detect this cancer earlier. Um, I think I think that there's no question that, that we, we see that as a priority. Um, and that's something we're doing at Cambridge. It's something we're doing nationally and internationally. And we, we, we try and try and join the dots. Um, Okay, so I think uh, there were there were some other uh, questions regarding that. Um, actually, I think we've answered uh, about the PALB2 mutation. So that, that PALB2 is is seen actually in in, in pancreatic uh, cancer as well, and they that the, generally that would be um, you know those patients might be referred to the Europank uh, study, which is Europac study in which is being run from Liverpool, but has different sites um, within the UK. Uh, the closest to us, I think, is, is actually in London. Okay, so I'm just looking through. Um, does anyone else want to answer any other questions? Oh, this is a really, this is a really kind of important question on, on the, on the B part of research, this is an anonymous attendee, B part of research website, there are currently 38 pancreatic cancer studies, there are 147 breast cancer studies, are there plans for further funding and research into pancreatic cancer? Well, we really think that it should be, it should be. I think it's, traditionally there's been a bit of a, a feeling of nihilism around this cancer because, you know, and, and um, it's, it's easy to understand when we haven't made massive inroads into the, the, um, the, the kind of survival outcomes. You know, they really haven't changed very significantly for decades. I don't know if Julia would like to say something about this. Yeah, as you said, uh, we haven't really made much improvement. De definitely, there's way more research than there was 20 years ago. Uh, we, we can see that. We still have a way long to go to make better models in the labs that better recapitulate what we see in the patients. And I think when we get there, we will be able to translate what we find in the lab to the clinic more quickly. And this is also what is great about Cambridge is that there's a lot of collaboration between the academics and people like me in the lab and people like Prissy in the clinic. And we keep communicating about priorities for the patients and how we can um, make waves. Yeah, thank you. And, and actually, we really need our patient advocates. We really need the public 
to prioritize this and and and, and you know tell funders this is actually something we need to work on so so we're all we're all part of the same community and we, we all want the same aim which is to improve the outcomes of pancreatic cancer um, okay, so there are several actual. Uh, so there are several questions um, coming through, which are quite similar on the genetic aspects, and I and um, I think that the um, the guidelines. Um, uh, if you actually access the Europac uh, registry um, website, um, the um, they they will have certain um, uh, guidelines on how. Um, you can be referred and whether you meet the criteria for those uh, for those sorts of studies. So, so I've, I've just answered the question from Fran and from anonymous and attendee, which I think um, I think um, has, has addressed that kind of aspect. Um, so I, I, um, I have um, something from Roy. Uh, Thanks for a great webinar from a seven plus survivor of pancreatic cancer with one out of 13 lymph nodes and six months of gemcitabine. That's fantastic. We're so delighted. Um, long may your health continue. Um, and actually, we did have a question from, um, from Sally in Cambridgeshire about, uh, um, I, I believe that uh, you know, she's done very well with her pancreatic cancer diagnosis, exceptionally well on Fulfirinox. And um, why is that? You know, what what makes her what makes her tumor special or her special what how, how do we find out about why certain patients are going to be uh, more sensitive to some of the treatments which are adopted in in um uh in clinical practice so um Pippa, I, I, maybe you can start here but we, we're, we're very happy to yeah i mean i think this goes back to the understanding that you know not all cancers are the same and traditionally we have literally boxed people into well this is pancreatic cancer and we treat it this way this is breast cancer and we treat it this way and what we've absolutely learned over the last um 10 15 years is that this is really not the case and that at a molecular, because we're looking initially, we're looking under the microscope at, at a, uh, you know, it, it's still microscopic, but it's, it has, it's at a sort of a cellular level, everything looks the same. But when you get people like Julia looking at the molecular level, the, the nitty gritty genetic makeup of the cancers, then you see lots and lots of variation and differences. And this is when this concept of precision medicine comes in, that we actually really need to understand the individual personalized tumor so that we can hopefully, and I think there were some questions in, uh, around this, generate personalized medicine for the future. And so if we take fulfurinox, for example, there, there, there's a number of different drugs in there, but we do know that these drugs were working in different ways. And one of the possibly the key drugs in that combination is, is a drug called um, oxaliplatin. And these platinum drugs are working in a particular way to cross-link DNA um, and stop it um, uh, functioning in the normal way. Um, and it may be that there are a certain set of genetic changes that are actually predisposing to that particular type of chemotherapy being effective. So if we can actually characterize each individual patient's tumor and identify those people who have, or those tumors that have those changes, maybe we can actually 
push those people into them being the ones that have fulfurinox or platinum-based chemotherapy. And this is the basis of, again, one of the trials in the Precision Plank program, Primus 001, is very specifically looking to see if we can identify a particular genetic signature that actually will predict for platinum-based response. So it's this kind of thing that we are working towards. At the moment, we just, you know, we're in that process um, and hopefully in the coming years, we will be able to get the answers that we need so that we will hopefully be able to start personalizing people's treatment. Thank you. And, and I think, you know, one of the questions came, which came from one of our um, anonymous attendees is how do I know if I'm suitable for one of these trials? It's OK to ask. It's okay to ask, ask your oncologist, ask your GP. Um, there are resources, the Pancreatic Cancer UK, Cancer Research UK um, sites as well, which might direct you um, to where some of these research studies are, are being done. So you, please don't feel that you, because it hasn't been offered necessarily that you, you, you're you not right to ask, please do ask. Um, okay, so so actually um, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, treatments and how treatments might be um, changed in the future. Actually, I'm gonna stay just for a couple more minutes on this before we draw it back to some of the symptom side of things. Um, in terms of where research is going in the future, research investment in basic biology, and, and also, you know, I think um, where, where treatments are going in the future, in, we, we have to obviously understand that it's not just the pancreatic cancer cell, which is the problem, you know, there is the surrounding cells, which I think is a focus of Julia's work. We would also like to work out why some of the treatments that Pippa has mentioned has, have worked in other cancers, uh, immunotherapies, for instance, why they, they, they're not particularly active in this particular cancer. Why is it that the, the immune cells just aren't within the vicinity or the wrong immune cells are within the vicinity and that means that you can't get your own immune system to work against the cancer how can we actually work on um, improving that you know so that there are ways of bringing in other cells outside of the pancreatic cancer cell um, to to try and improve that i don't know whether julia or, or pippa would like to mention that this but anything about this i, I know pippa has a, a clinical study we're, we're planning to open um, nationally in the next year but julia's also got a very active um, area of research on this Jordan, i'll kick in and julia you pick up um so um i think as i'm also in my other half of my life i treat a, a disease called melanoma and immunotherapy has absolutely revolutionized how we treat melanoma. And I think many pancreatic cancer patients often say, well, you know, why can't I have immunotherapy? Why, why, why isn't it a treatment for me? But the disease again is very, very different. Um, and if you look um, under the microscope in, in melanomas, you see lots and lots of immune cells that are packing in there alongside um, the, 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 the melanocytes. Um, and also what you see at the molecular level is you see lots and lots of abnormal genes, uh, gene mutations. And that's because in the case of melanoma, a lot of that damage to the, the, the skin generated by the sun, so sun damage generates mutations. And those mutations actually get our T cells really, really busy because the T cells are the key cells in our immune system that are actually gonna fight the disease and kill off the tumor cells. Um, now, in the case of, of immunotherapy, the kind of drugs that we're currently using called immune checkpoint inhibitors, they are actually enhancing the behavior of the T cells that already exist in our body. 
So if you have a tumor that is sitting there with lots of abnormalities, um, you know, if you then charge up those T cells to get to work, you get a really good response. And that's why it works in melanoma. In pancreas, it seems to be completely, completely different. So if you look at a, at a pancreas, um, the, the, the T cells are not within the tumor. They're sitting around the tumor. So they're not getting into the tumor. Um, so that's one issue. Um, but the other thing um, that uh, we're interested in is, is this number of, of genetic mutations. And we call this tumor mutation burden. Um, if you look again in pancreatic cancer, although it's a, it's a very abnormal disease, the number of mutations is nowhere near the number that again, we see in melanoma. But again, going uh, uh, along that concept, well, even if there's a subgroup of people who do have very high levels of, of tumor mutation burden, could we identify those individuals and then at least offer them an immunotherapy approach? And that's what we're trying to do in the study that, that I'm leading on, where actually through our, our precision medicine molecular profiling, we will be able to measure tumor mutation burden. And in those people that have a very high level of those mutations, we will offer them an immunotherapy approach and see whether, again, just by identifying a subgroup of patients, we, could, we can improve their outcomes at least. So it's just one, another, one other approach to how we can try and break down this concept of just giving everybody the same treatment. Okay, Judy, do you want to maybe just add to that? Yeah, so as Brissy mentioned, my lab works on the non-cancerous cells uh, of pancreatic tumors. And that's because, um, maybe surprising considering this is such a deadly disease, but the majority of the cells in a pancreatic tumor are not cancer cells are uh, fibroblasts uh, that are cells that we work on in the lab and other immune cells. And uh, we are interested in understanding how the cancer cells reprogram these non-cancerous cells because we find that these non-cancerous cells protect the tumor, uh, allows the tumor to grow and uh, uh, prevents drugs to be uh, effective in killing the tumor, both chemotherapies, but also immunotherapies. And uh, the fibroblasts, which are the cells that we work on, actually have been shown to be responsible for this uh, immunotherapy um, inefficacy. So even if uh, there are pancreatic tumors, actually, that they have a lot of T cells, but they don't get close to the cancer cells because you have all of these non-cancerous cells that prevent them to get in there and be active and killing the cancer cells. And so uh, the other thing is that while you have maybe 10% of the cancer cells and all the 90% is non-cancerous cells. This non 90% is very heterogeneous. And we find that uh, the mutations that people was mentioning are affecting the heterogeneity and the variety of these different non-cancerous cells. And so that's why I really think that down the line, precision medicine would be key because every tumor looks a bit different not just because how the cancer cells look, but also how the non-cancer cells look and how a therapy will affect the cancer cells. It might also affect the non-cancer cells. So we need to be proactive rather than play catching up and be able to uh, combine different therapies so that we can actually be effective in uh, treating the disease. Thank you so much. That, those are really, really interesting quest, um, answers, questions and answers, I think. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I think we have to bring it back now down to reality in terms of what we have um, currently. We've got so many exciting things on the horizon, but many of our patients 
just don't get to any form of treatment. Seven out of 10, I think that was an absolutely devastating statistic um, that Pancreatic Cancer UK found that seven out of 10 people with this cancer don't actually receive active cancer uh, therapy or, or treatments. And, and, and actually they're in their situation, they are for uh, best supportive care, um, symptom control, um, I know that there are lots of questions on their diet because many of them are diabetic and those have been a number of questions uh, related to that and um, I was wondering whether Laura you could uh, mention some of the um, some of the kind of advice you might give in that situation. So someone who is diabetic uh, and, and trying to maintain, you know, intake uh, when often they're, they're trying to they're trying not to lose weight, are they? Aren't they? But they have to watch out how to manage their diabetes as well. So, yeah, I, I believe it's about 80 or 85 percent of people with diabetes in this country have type two diabetes, which is um, often a very uh, lifestyle linked disease. And the advice um given out with healthy eating messages to people with diabetes is uh, very targeted towards type 2 diabetes and that's not appropriate for someone with pancreatic cancer so most people with pancreatic cancer who have diabetes will have what's called type 3c diabetes which is different from type 1 which is an autoimmune condition and different from type 2 which is a metabolic condition um, it has similarities with each, but it is different and needs to be treated differently. And if someone um, has pancreatic cancer and diabetes and they're given this healthy eating advice, then that's not appropriate because they need to be nourished in a different way. Aiming for weight loss is not appropriate. So, um, you know, we have our exercise experts here, but still activity and using your muscles is appropriate. Um, but in a different way and um, not aiming to lose weight, as I mentioned. So sometimes people can get conflicting messages where they um, are treated by someone, maybe in a GP practice or that hasn't come across 3C diabetes before and is used to treating someone with type 2. I mean, you can be overweight with pancreatic cancer and it's still not appropriate to aim to reduce your weight. So it can sometimes be difficult to give people the support um, that is appropriate for them. We have written uh, patient information literature that's available for dietitians, uh, clinical nurse specialists nationally, um, doctors to, to help to support that. Um, but that's definitely a work in progress. Thank you. So I think we're going to wrap up in the last two minutes, actually, and, and try and get um, maybe Francis and Jill and Jim to mention what some of the support networks and, 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 and structures that they can, patients and families can access um, with this pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Uh, Shall I go first? Um, so within the Cambridge area, we, um, we run a, something called Enhanced Supportive Care. So that's often for patients who are having some um, oncology treatment um, at an early stage. And the, the benefit of that is that actually you start to build up a, a rapport with, with, with the patient, with their families, with things that they may need now or they may be worried about needing in the future. Um, and, uh, and then we can refer on to other services if needed. Um, and there, we can we can 
so it may be that there are no symptoms necessary at the moment, but it is something that people worry about developing in the future. So having that access to early palliative care um, is something that I think we need to we need to spread out there much more. Jill, can you can you add to that at all? I think I think we're quite fortunate um, in Cambridge. We've got quite a good support network. I think it's just sort of letting um, people know about it. Of course, we work closely with um, enhanced supportive care, um, but also so we do have other agencies like um, the Maggie Wallace Centre, etc., um, that provide support but, um, for the patients themselves, but also relatives, which is really important. Um, and also there's sort of various. Um, charities sort of you know smaller charities like the Elizabeth Copeman Fund um, provide support but I think it's you know as we've mentioned before it's looking at both the you know the psychological input and the physical um, because it's it's really tough um, on both um, and sometimes it can be you know quite a, a quick journey um, so we need to sort of get involved quite quickly and all work together um, which I, I think we do. And I'd like to leave the last word with Jim if that's okay um, in terms of what support networks um, he's accessed and what, what's been helpful? Well, I'd say when I was first diagnosed, I didn't know of any support networks and such things. And I realised how essential that would be, you know, the emotional and psychological load on yourselves. But currently, one support uh, network that I'm closely involved with is with PC UK. It's called their side-by-side -side network, in which somebody who's been newly diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and is been referred for surgery can speak to somebody like myself who has been through the journey. And this is often the first person they've spoken to who they know has survived this terrible disease. Now, so that is a huge support to this person. And over the phone, you can often almost hear the weight being lifted off their shoulders that actually there may well be a light at the end of this tunnel. I think that is, that is the key thing. People need that kind of positivity, which then helps them when they're going forward into surgery and the rest of the trip having some hope, because when I was first diagnosed, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't see Christmas ahead of me. And that's the important thing, giving people that hope. Hope and belief is the key thing here, I think. Thank you so much for that. That was a really wonderful way to wrap up this. And I, I think, yes, we want to get away from the nihilism. We, we're, we're so, so committed to improving the outcomes for this cancer. Um, and World Pancreatic Cancer Day is a great time to focus our minds on how this is going to happen. There are several events happening uh, locally and regionally. Um, we will have on our Twitter page and also our, our website how you can access some of these. We will also, we had so many other questions coming through. I, I wasn't able to, to get us to answer all of that, but I, um, um, we will try and address a few of them either via Twitter or via our website where we can. But I just want to say thank you so much to all of our our wonderful panelists here. Thank you to um, uh, the um, other supporting members uh, from PPIE and the, Amanda Stranks from PCUK, um, Anna Lakey, uh, Reese Grant, um, our Cambridge Science uh, Communications um, lead, and 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 Jim certainly for 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 your voice as well today. Um, we hope it's been useful. We hope to do this again sometime, and we'd love to have some feedback from you. But uh, hope you have a very good day. Take care.